Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts from Olink Proteomics talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts. Hey there, welcome to Proteomics in Proximity. I'm your host, Cindy Lolly, with my co-host... Dale Yuzuki. Today we're talking to Karsten Sura from Wild Cornell Medicine. He's uh, calling in from Doha, Qatar, where he's been driving collaborations for over 10 years. Uh, he's here. He's going to talk to us about integrating genomics data with various intermediate phenotypes like metabolomics and proteomics. He has recent publications on, he's got so many publications, it's ridiculous. Uh, he does meta-analyses on COVID, uh, obesity, translation of biomarkers to the clinic. And if we go far enough back, he's got some publications on atmospheric science, which I am just fascinated by coming from an oceanography background. So, uh, so this man who li- exists in boundary conditions between sciences and really overcomes barriers for analyzing these data is is... So exciting to bring on board. So, Karsten, with that introduction, would you like to just start off by telling us what you'd like our audience to know about you going into our discussion? Yeah, all right. Thank you very much, uh, Cindy and Dave, for for having me. Um, I mean, you already (laughs) covered so much about what what has been going on. So I would just say, let's just just go into it right away. Okay, I understand. Go ahead, Carson, Del. I understand that you came from a background in physics, like atmospheric physics, you know, theoretical quantum yes. physics. Uh, what caused you to go into the genomics field? Well, I mean, it was a chance event. I initiated uh, quantum field theory, went to England, learned about fluid dynamics, like that very much, tried to do a PhD there, but then I moved basically into atmospheric chemistry. And then at some point, I went back to industry for private reasons and had to go back to, 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 to working with engineers and stuff like that. And then at some point, I, I thought it's much, much more interesting to be a researcher rather than an engineer. I wasn't fitting into engineering. And at that point, I just by a chance event, I read the Le Monde where they talked about the human genome. And I just had the chance that the CNRS actually allowed me to change field when I returned to, so CNRS, to France and just CNRS off. is, oh, is sorry, uh, yes, CNRS. CNRS. That's the, what do you want to say? The, the national research, um, center in, in France and they do basically and so this everything. Was, and I was, so this was maybe 2001 when the draft was announced, that kind of thing was what you saw. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I was supposed to go back to atmospheric chemistry, but I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I came across uh, a lab in, in Marseille mm. where basically they were all physicists, astronomers, astromo- <laughs> uh, yes. bioinformatics at the moment didn't exist. Yes. And, and bioinformaticians were, were basically well, physicists. And so you were, I mean, he, was learning, he was learning the language. He was learning French. He, he already knows German. He's learning, he knows English, clearly. And he's learning the language of biology. I'm saying it's not that easy. Well, also, back in 2001, right, the human genome had just been finished in a draft form. This is when GeneBank was still in a library of 15 CDs, compact yes. discs, right? And this was at a time when uh, yes. people's comprehension of genes 
genes was growing, but we had no idea how many genes there were, right? Estimates for in the 100,000 genes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to have a draft and all of a sudden, okay, now what, right? <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> well, at the time we worked on, on a thousand genes. So we do, did bacterial genomes. At the time you could on one publish yeah. one genome in science. A single genome, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And as far as that, well, at that time goes, did you, what did you find about that transition from, well, I mean, atmospheric chemistry, help me, is that like ozone layer type of work or is that other kind? Also, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we actually have a nature paper on ozone in the upper upper. Of course you do. Measurement of course you do. On, <laughs> on, on aircraft. I mean, it doesn't even show up in PubMed <laughs> because it's not medical. That's funny. Um, but in the end, it's it's this. After that, actually, I didn't really change fields. The thing is, if you go for atmospheric chemistry, what we did is we measured. Uh, all kinds of chemicals in the atmosphere using aircraft and, and using ships and balloons and, and, and lidars and things like that. And then when you integrated the data, and that was my job, basically integrating all these measurements, I, I, I like to say it's the same thing as what we do before. The only difference is the organism is, is the earth. It's, you, it's, you it's atmospheric chemistry. It's epidemiology, like right? Dealing with big data. Messy data, figuring yeah. out yeah. what are your bound, what is your, what are your cutoffs, what are your outliers, and what to, what to believe. And and the systems biology. I mean, the kind of modeling of the data. We we had um, differential equation systems that are the same that are used today to model metabolomics in cells. It was just the metabolomics in, in, in the atmosphere and things were transported around by This is dynamics. great. The systems biology of the earth versus the systems biology of the human. Yeah? It, yeah. Yeah, and you would be surprised that there's so much match from one to the other. You would could match all the, the, the chemical reactions and stuff like that. There's so many problems that are exactly wow. the same. It's the atmosphere uh, of I the mean, human. Of course, it's the, a different dimension. The atmosphere of the human. I love it. Yeah, it makes total yeah. sense. Yep. And therefore, then at, is it CNRS? Then you got involved in the genomics piece. Can can you tell me what it was like in two thousand two to two thousand five in those early years? I mean, that was HapMap, right? Uh, Cindy and I were at no, yeah. not even not even HapMap. I mean, when I started, it was a lab uh, in in Marseille, and they were working on bacterial genomes. So they were some of the first of sequencing them and actually integrating them with um, structural biology. So whenever there was a gene discovered, the, the team crystallized the protein, overexpressed it, of course, did the structure, and then tried to understand the, the function. So it was functional bioinformatics. The human stuff only came in 2006 when I moved from Marseille to Munich. Then suddenly I moved from bacteria to, to humans with the with yeah, Cora both, study. yeah, that Cora study. And what an amazing study! What, what and is, Dale, you and I, you and I were in uh, Illumina by then. You and I were help yeah. help me with the Cora study. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, well, the Cora study is is a population study. So basically, it's you you, you know maybe mm -hmm. the Framingham yes. study. So and Cora is the German Framingham study, if you want, like thousands of people recruited, every phenotype, blood drawn re-recruiting, things like that. And the Cora study at the time was really, it was just the right moment because they all this omics started off. So they were genotyping them. They were starting the GWAS in 2006. The first GWAS came out. And uh, and then where we were, it's like mm. the we were the first to actually run a GWAS with metabolomics. 
with the, at the time with Biocrates and Metabolon, the, the two, two companies. And from there on, actually, if, if you go back, go further on, came the idea to do GWAS on all these kind of, uh, intermediate phenotypes, the different metabolites, proteins, uh, you, you, you have it. And that was really very, very interesting thing. And everything I did since then is basically a scaling up of what we, what we did. And that week. particular association, right? The GWAS studies that we're familiar with are GWAS to disease. You're bringing in a new yes. layer and you're calling it an intermediate phenotype. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. What is an intermediate phenotype? Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> uh, okay, I should pay credit to the person who really mm. brought up the idea. That's Florian Kronberg. He was also formerly Munich, mm. then Austria. Um, so the idea of the intermediate phenotype is to say you have the genome that actually pr produces your, your effect, your, your, your protein levels, your, your metabolic level, and then that affects the disease. Mm. So if you want to know how a genetic variance goes and determines a disease endpoint, uh, you can say, okay, this gene has a risk for diabetes or whatever, but you don't know really why and what's the function of the gene. The moment you put a, a phenotype in between that is basically an outcome of, of, of your genetic variation and at the same time a cause for, for the downstream effect uh, on the disease, you're much closer to your phenotype and you have a much stronger statistical signal once you do your association studies. And then, of course, you can build up networks out of that, right? You can go from transcriptomics to, to proteomics to metabolomics. You could throw in protein glycosylation, phosphorylation, everything you can measure on an omics level. And then in the end, link it to, to the endpoint. Mm. And I think nowadays, uh, the, the, the concept of Mendelian randomization very much uh, gets into that as well to say you have this intermediate phenotype is basically like what people think as exposures and then you have the um, the outcome which I is wanna, disease. I want to just say that you know when when Karsten and I spoke when I was doing metabolomics uh, him telling me that this story was in, very impactful just like blew my mind uh, that that an intermediate phenotype in power like I hadn't thought about the power of it but it's a, a bit of a magnifying glass to to be able to help you see yep. with by improving power, help you see uh, what's really going on in the connection between disease and genetics. So I just wanted to, to um, honor that explanation because I think you do a great job of translating information into a, a biologist's perspective. But in, in the end, it's all yeah. statistics, right? And when you use the word power, it's, it's yeah. really well defined. And it's the, it's the way to say, if I do a study in, in a human population, I have a lot of noise. I mean, there's a lot of, it's not monogenic mice. So getting the signal out of the noise is what is your statistical power. So what chances do you have to get a statistically significant signal? And an association with a complex endpoint like di diabetes needs much larger numbers than an association with a metabolic intermediate phenotype. So you can go stepwise from, from the, the gene to the, to the metabolite and then associating the metabolite with the, with the endpoint. And as I said before, nowadays you can put in Mendelian randomization and even get asked questions like, is it causal? Is it worth being targeted by a drug mm -hmm. or is it rather a biomarker? In uh, 2005, right, I'm selling the first human 
microarrays, whole genome microarrays to the National Institutes here in Bethesda. Yeah. And then after the Selects acquisition, started selling right genome analyzers for looking at all this variation. And don't skip over the uh, the work we did with the NHBLI in order to do the Framingham cohort, which was certainly one of, you know, I remember staying up till four in the morning writing that grant, <laughs> Dale. <laughs> well, I, I was going yeah. to say that, you know, all that genomic work of whatever, I mean, I from 2007 for the first genome analyzer coming out um, to the present, right? So much genomic data, right? First uh, thousands, then hundreds of thousands, now millions of genomes and exomes, and yet so little impact upon such common disease like you mentioned diabetes, right? Where there isn't a genetic signal. But what you're saying now is genetic variation with the intermediate phenotype, we can understand how people get diabetes. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that, that, that's the point. And also you can basically dissect the pathways. So if you have now 100 different genetic signals on mm. diabetes, they don't all associate with the same, in the same way with the same metabolites. Some may go through, through more a brain pathway, mm -hmm. an endocrine pathway, whatever. And the metabolites that are associated with these variants, they can tell you which pathway things are going and what's so actually get, happening. Mm. So in the end, I, I also like, there's an image, like, it actually comes from Biocrates. They had this first on their slides to say, like, in the end, the, the, this intermediate phenotype is like, like an imaging. So they had this kind of image of, of a dog that was like in very broad pixel. And the deeper you go into there, more resolution, the more you see. So in the end, yeah. I think intermediate phenotype is like an imaging of your biochemistry and what happens in your, in your so body. And that's why it's so worthy to, to go for, and for this. Therefore, kind of you're data. getting very unusual connections to diabetes, then, like you mentioned, in terms of well, the systems you, biology piece. And you have an opportunity, I think, also with mm. a non Northern European uh, population to characterize biomarkers that will then be moved to the clinic in order to monitor diabetes where triglycerides or HbA1c aren't successful, right? That's the exciting aspect to me, is being able to identify new ways to monitor hmm. or to predict those that are at a higher risk for developing diabetes years in advance. But now you're talking about the Qatar Biobank, right? When you say non-European exactly. populations exactly. and things like that. I mean, that that's a very... Very important point as well. I think something that's nowadays also linked to this intermediate phenotype, and I think there, if we come back to, for instance, what Olink is doing in UK Biobank, is this quest, especially of, of industry, to say we want to find human knockouts like PCSK9. Exactly. So we would like to find a human homozygote who is hopefully living well, and then try to figure out why is that. What, what, what does this knockout do? And is it something that can be targeted, that can be beneficial and things like that? And we just did an analysis on the Qatar Biobank. And it turns out like because we have this kind of very um, um, mm -hmm. consanguineous population, basically have like you have a 160 times chance of finding a human a knockout in the, in the Qatar population compared to UK Biobank. And that, of course, makes it interest, even more mm -hmm. interesting to go for people where you have like a, home, a rare homozygote associated with extreme protein levels, low or high, or extreme or low or high metabolite levels and, and mm. things like that. 
And then from there on, it's, it's not GWAS anymore, right? It's basically like these individual cases. It's not even rare variant. It's really like you want to have the homozygotes that, yep. that are there and see are they on PCSK9 is this very low LDL. Is, is and that sounds like a very low-cost study. Once you've been able to identify those knockouts, you can do it in a small number of samples, but you have to have the genetic data. Is that fair to say or am I, or does it take a lot of samples to, to test that? I just am thinking about GWAS, but right? GWAS, need, you, oh, we just, there was so much we couldn't see in those first GWAS studies in, back in 2005, 2006, uh, that were done with, with the GWAS arrays. I mean, you still need big numbers to, to find this. In the genetic right? data, data, sure. But once you've got those genetic data, I guess my question is, structure of the, of the study when you're layering on proteomics could be a smaller study because you've already done the genetic, uh, you've identified the heterogeneity and characterized your extreme phenotypes or what you expect to be your extreme phenotypes. You're right, you could, you could do that, but I would probably still go for the whole cohort on, on terms of and metabolomics, because in the end you don't know who, who you want to, you don't want to start with I the genetics. I love that and then messaging. I love that. <laughs> uh, Carson, would you mind backing up a bit and tell me a little bit of higher level view of this particular study or this particular cohort in, in Qatar that you're working with? Well, I, I mean, I just said Cora is the Yes. Yep. framing him. And, I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I do want to say, Annette him. Peters is, is the current PI of the Cora cohort there out of Augsburg, right? Uh, she's in, in Helmholtz, Annette, Annette Peters. Peters. I just want to yes. give her a shout yes. out. But yes. yeah, back to the Qatar biobank. Yeah. So how yeah. large is it and how yeah. long has it been uh, collecting samples? Um, I think I think when I came here, they were building it up in co collaboration with the uh, Imperial mm. College, and actually there were also colleagues from Munich who were coming over here as consultants, so they got in contact with them pretty easy. Um, I think at the moment they are well above mm. twenty thousand. I know that they have twenty thousand individuals fully genome wow. sequenced. Uh, we ran. 3,000 samples on an in-house plat metabolon platform here in Qatar, also 3,000 on a somologic platform, and we started working on that end. I think there's a huge potential there to potentially do the same thing as what, what is happening in mm. UK Biobank, finding maybe someone who's ready to, to put in funding to get more mm. omics data and, and things like that. That's so pretty mm. exciting, and as I said, this, this specific Genetic specificity, of course, makes it very valuable to, to dis discover yeah. these human knockouts. To be clear, then, it's agnostic for disease in terms of it's, you're looking at 20,000 individuals, yes. the metabolome, the proteome. Like, li like yeah. Framingham. Like Framingham. It's just a cross-sectional thing. Of course, Qatar has a very mm -hmm. high diabetes rate, which is a challenge for Qatar. That's why Cornell is so engaged here in Qatar. But it's also, of course, a chance if you want to study diabetes, because you have a very high, there's a 20%, over 20% diabetes prevalence in Qatar. And you have a lot of undiagnosed diabetics in there, which is also scientifically very interesting, because these are people who are not treated with medication. Yep. So mm. if you do all the omics on them, the, the problem if you want to yes. study diabetes with omics is, is especially in Cora, sometimes the diabetes, the people with diabetes, they are much more healthy than the others because they know they have diabetes, Isn't that they look at their cholesterol, they do everything they need. 
And then it's very hard to actually study anything There's like a, bad about them. There's a motivation because component are, because they've got this sort of, you know, this deadline by which they need to reverse whatever was going on before. That's really interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, I remember there were leaflets from diabetes associations in Germany. They actually said, don't worry, diabetes is not necessarily something negative. I mean, of course, it's a disease, but if you take it the right way, it could actually change your, your life and in the right prolong way. Prolong your yeah, prolong you your health span, attack. right? That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would, I wouldn't go no, and no, say no, I want to get but, diabetes. I mean, but it does saying, speak to the power. It, it speaks to the power of feedback, right? And some of these companies that are trying to provide uh, a way for you to monitor your health—that's not going to be paid for by insurance, at least not in the U.S. But it's it it speaks to if you identify something really early that looks like you're nudging, you're you're out of you know, normal or healthy range, then there's a motivation factor to nudge it back, right? It's a wearables argument, maybe. And, and especially in this diabetes field, of course, the problem is if, if you're actually able to, to change things, because there's some things not everybody can change like this. And there's a lot of brain component in this as well. It's not just like, oh, your your fat you lose weight yeah. i mean it's it's much more complex yeah. than that and it's interesting the diabetes uh, heart attack or heart health connection because uh, i was just reading a paper last week that talked about a particular drug on market for diabetes that reduced the risk of of heart failure and it, it's just remarkable right in terms of we get back to systems biology we get back to yeah we have a connected systems yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as then this particular study goes in, in, in that you're working with the metabolome and the proteome uh, is it you, you're now looking for funding or you said that it's like the UK Biobank and that it could lead to something like that, or? Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's not me. Yeah, Qatar Biobank is understood. not a Cornell thing. Qatar Biobank yeah. is from Qatar Foundation. So actually, I try to, to motivate people to say, do yes. this kind of a deal. It would be yes, a win win yes. for everyone. Um, but it wouldn't be up to me yeah, to decide. I see. And moving on a little bit, I think I've aware of this paper that was recently published in Frontiers in Immunology. Uh, what can you tell me about it? This is identification <laughs> of robust protein associations with COVID-19 disease yeah. based on five clinical studies. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a bit an outcome of, I mean, the COVID has changed a lot of stuff also here in Qatar. And it made us collaborate strongly with New York. Because, I mean, you know, especially... Wellcon in New York, they are affiliated with the mm -hmm. New Presbyterian Hospital, and they were totally on the front line at the time. And they collected samples from COVID. We collected samples here in Qatar. And my colleague, Frank Schmidt, who's running the proteomics core here, and he has, he has an owning platform at the moment, um, he brought basically in these samples, and we measured for Cornell in Qatar and New York, these samples. And then Asked this question, I think everybody was asking at the time, what, what is special about COVID? What can we learn by, by doing things? And I mean, there was a big rush. And I think there's also a lot of not so good papers out there. So you have to really be, be careful of what's, what's there. And I'm not saying ours is one of the best. It's just like uh, to combine the data. And at the time, I think Olink, and you can maybe help me on that, they shared uh, of their 1,500 right. large it's, data set. Yeah, publicly available, publicly. downloadable, an MGH yep. study uh, with several collaborators. Yeah, exactly. so I see 
306 cases, 78 controls from Massachusetts General on the Olink Explorer 1536. Yep. So it was a very broad study. And then the other th- yep. four studies that you mentioned from Imperial College of London and, like you mentioned, New York Presbyterian, what, maybe 50 to yes. 200 cases or so. Um, but nonetheless, uh, yep. quite an interesting data set. Yes, Cindy, you're going to say something? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, I mean that, that was a bit the the, the the motivation to say for us it was an opportunity to really learn also learn about the new Olink platform with the fifteen hundred, mm-hmm. uh, bring the data together, and the idea was to say okay, especially with COVID, the conditions are so uncontrolled because the the, the situation was just like oh grab every sample you have there, but you cannot make sure that everybody is under the same conditions to say if you combine five different studies to say what comes out and what's really in all studies at the same time, which doesn't mean that the others are, are not relevant hits, but these are the ones that are really so robust that even under under worst conditions, you can see them. And that makes them very interesting, of course, as, as, as markers Pathways. and, and, and yeah. to guide further, yeah. further research. Yeah. Because we had some that were plasma, some were plasma EDTA, some were inactivated with heat, yes. others were inactivated with Triton X, a detergent, yeah. some weren't inactivated at all. <laughs> And I'm like, so you combined all yes. these different yes. centers, different storage conditions. Uh, I don't have information on how they were stored or how quickly they're at room temperature or what have you. Uh, what can you comment on that? I mean, the, yeah. in the, from the reviewer's point of view, right? Don't they raise eyebrows when you're like, what are you trying <laughs> to do here? There's too many variables involved. Yeah, yeah right. And, and I mean, it's the same thing in many papers that there's always concern about study limitations and things like that. But I think as long as you acknowledge these limitations and you say, and you go for the really strong associations, and of course you may, must make sure that you don't create bias by having confounders. That, that's the risk. You have to make sure that there's not confounding. But once you're sure about all that, then having something that sticks out of this noise is really a strong signal and it's really worth following up because you're sure it will be replicated in the next next study and not it will disappear because the next study is maybe not clean as clean as, as the first one. And yeah, the the abstract of this paper indicates thirteen proteins, right, were significantly associated with COVID infection, yeah. right, compared to controls. And that yeah. these differential expression of thir- these thirteen proteins was across all five, which I think is pretty re- you know, like you mentioned, it's a strong signal. And yeah, and, and it was Bonforni yeah. corrected, so corrected for multiple testing as well. So it's not like 0.05 it's things much lower. and stuff what, like that. Minus eight. Yeah, well, why don't you comment on this, that important point, which is the Bonforoni correction and how many signals disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and that frustration, yeah, but, but it needs to be done, right? Well, it, I mean, it needs to be done. I think the point with p-values is always, I mean, if you have a really good study that has enough and the yeah. word power comes back, then you can allow yourself to really go for the, the strongest hits and focus on them first. Uh, if you don't have that, then you have to do p-value gymnastics, things like that. Although you should be aware, of course, I mean, there's a lot of more signal below that you don't want to lose, right? I mean, later on, once you know that your study is good and that what are the caveats? You can look at the hits that are not that strong and see, are they biologically relevant? Can I take them maybe as a starting point, as preliminary data for the next grant, and then reinforce that and, and confirm it? So I'm not, not saying you should only look at Bonferroni's significance, but coming from the GWAS field, I mean, it's even worse. 
you have to be Bonferroni and replicate, which a statistician would say, oh, it's evident it should replicate. But even then, it not mm. always does replicate. And that means it's always good to be very conservative on these p-values if you don't want to end up with things that uh, well, that just don't work and don't replicate. Because that's frustrating if, if, if then you follow up on something and then things don't replicate and you just turn data up and down and just refuses to replicate. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about the results, right, in terms of these 13 proteins, maybe some familiar suspects like IL-6 and interferon gamma, uh, what can you comment in terms of then the practical usefulness of these inflammation-related proteins and its association with COVID? No. no, no, you put me on the spot because that's really a medical medical thing. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, of course, I try to figure out a bit what's interesting yeah. about these. Um, you may also be a bit more reductiveness and say, well, maybe there's a lot of stuff you would not even be surprised about to find them. Is it? Is it? And I think hmm. that's an important thing. We have other papers where we compare not COVID case control, but COVID against bacterial mm -hmm. RDS. And you ask yourself, what is really specific to COVID? Because just to say there's a cytokine storm and that's something that could also happen if you have a bacterial infection. Um, um, I think the, what really changed something, I think, about COVID in the last years is what we learned about how to treat COVID. And I'm not a specialist in interpreting this, and I find it sometimes interesting what people actually see in our papers, which I didn't even see. And it would help doctors, I think, to understand what kind of access you really want to want to go in, in your treatment. I think my understanding is that a lot of the why the, the death rate in COVID went down over over the months and the years, in part is because people understood better how to actually treat it. And and this kind of information I hope contributed to, to, to this kind of understanding at least to a certain yeah, level. That's really helpful because uh, to be clear for this audience, ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome, right? And this is where Right, you mentioned bacterial infection will bring about this, yeah. but COVID will also bring about well, this. And, and there's it, a lot of. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just. It's 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 basically like a control because you always want a control, but a non-COVID person is not a good control for a COVID person. If you want to know well, what is specific that, right. to COVID, so that then a person who has the same symptoms but not from COVID, that would be well, a much better control. And that's the MGH, yeah. yeah, like the Philbin at Michael Philbin's study as well, right? They, these were patients that came into the hospital yep. with symptoms that seemed COVID-like but tested negative. Their controls were were just that, which I I thought was. Yeah, worked well yes, with yes, what you were yeah. doing. Now, as far as then the proteomic analysis goes with these particular signals, is there a particular translational message in terms of ap applying this, sort of this knowledge clinically? Or is it still too early, right, when people have severe COVID, it's already known, it's diagnosed, they're monitoring for this. Like you mentioned, it suggests new treatment ideas, new clinical trials. I mean, uh, it, and is it... Hmm? I was just going to add on to that question. And who might pick this up from those that you work with? Who might pick this up and take it over that line, right? You, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, is it Gabby? Is it is it others who who... Just not to put you on the clinical spot. I think but, here, yeah. hmm. No, 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 no. I, I think the point is, in this case, we would probably not even know because the people who really pick it up would be the doctors who are capable of reading these papers and translating that into into practice. And maybe, I don't know whether it's maybe a bit too, too, too dangerous, but maybe let me comment carefully on this. You may have heard about Didier Raoult. Can you... 
he's the the person give some background uh, yeah he he's a he's a friend he's a french doctor who who promoted the 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 use of oh. Oh, yes. in now in i remember COVID. Yes. no i'm not yeah yes actually so no i'm saying yes. carefully yeah, yeah. i don't yeah. want to make any statements here yeah. i've been working directly with him we we worked together when i was in in france and we sequenced bacteria and stuff like that i think the way when he said this works in my hands He was criticized a bit against whether the, his studies really worked or not. But knowing him, I think he was a bit like he treated patients in a way that he knew how to work with his patients. I think the knowledge he as a doctor personally had and that may come out of which uh, chemokines and, and cytokines and whatever work. I think he, in, in a way he may have treated patients right the right way and, and treated them. What didn't work out was this statistical thing like black and white, yeah. quinone or not. And that that's a whole whole different story. But I think my feeling he was very honest on that end that he probably in, for himself treated this patient and saw an effect on that. And now coming to this translation thing, I think it's actually based on this kind of knowledge. So I think interacting with some doctors is like there's a lot of doctors don't really work like a robot like say if there's a then do b and then do c it's there's a lot of more like what's the whole feature right. of this patient and that's where the omics comes in and where i think where the bridge is still not there how do you really bridge that in in a way you cannot necessarily nowadays easily bridge it. maybe artificial intelligence at some point algorithms things like that could do it algorithmically but i think there's a lot of knowledge stomach knowledge from from doctors where they learn from these studies they take something from there they have their own picture on what's going on and then they treat then they treat patients on that basis and it's very hard to quantify and translate that into a, a case control research paper and that's where maybe did, did your old get some in, into some trouble because people expected that to be a case control study and, yeah. and, 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 and you have is it the is it the role of the md phds perhaps to do that or translational scientist is a is a job description i see much more commonly now right and i've and i'm trying yeah. to imagine what's their what are their objectives and what are they what are their key results that they're evaluated on you know and i hope that it's helping facilitate this translation yeah. because i think that when a when a scientist throws it over the fence it may not be be uh, it may not land in a place where where a person can carry it then to the clinic I think there's a, there's a huge gap between what we do on the research side and really getting it to the doctors because the doctors in the end they want to have and something that's actually replicated and yeah. just telling them here here are 50 proteins that go up and down is not something they can right. really translate and that's really the big thing where I think we've been working a lot on and I hope things are are getting better but if you want to go to personalized medicine I mean you cannot go at the same time to double blinded clinical trials but It's this N yeah. equals one thing. If you want to treat one person, you cannot do a test on 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 a hundred before you decide right. on, on, on right. the one. Right, and the doctors have to make those decisions, which is uh, always seem challenging yes. to me. <clears throat> yeah, one of the interesting points you bring yeah. up is the art of medicine versus the science of medicine. Yeah, and like you mentioned, in yeah. terms of treating the individual patient true personalized medicine oftentimes go with gut decisions based upon decades of experience in treating patients with similar yeah. symptoms. Yeah. And then it's, well, okay, what is that art? You know, what is it about this it? patient? Yeah, How do exactly. you capture that? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. 
Mm. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's where, 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 of course, all this omics stuff, if doctors learn mm. about that, if they can integrate mm. that into their gut feeling mm. in a certain way, and then, of course, this gut feeling, if you can, and then with the other buzzword, you can, if this gut feeling could be translated yeah. through artificial intelligence or whatever kind yeah. of things into something there, that, because in the end, you don't want to have like two doctors in the world who can mm. cure everybody and the others right. don't mm. know what to do, right? You want to basically have every doctor be able to cure yeah. every patient. And uh, going back a bit to a topic we touched on a little bit before in terms of that intermediate phenotype, multi-omics kind of approach, it seems like your work f- now primarily focuses on proteomics and metabolomics. Uh, you mentioned, well, <laughs> you can go into glycomics, right? You could go into transcriptomics. Yep. Methylation I'm, I'm curious, or epigenetics. Methylation, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, yep. I'm curious, yep. particularly yep. on the transcriptomics piece, your perspective now in terms of the usefulness of RNA-seq, either at single cell or bulk level, as it intersects with this intermediate phenotype idea, because obviously, right, DNA to RNA to protein, is it very useful signal in terms of RNA, or is it sort of one of these depends on what problems you want to answer? I'm interested in your perspective on and that. And single cell versus bulk, and yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, you make up a yeah. big, big <laughs> Yeah, it's broad. About. I mean, first, first of all, transcript, transcriptomics, you have to be careful about when we do metabolomics and proteomics, we look at what circulates yes. in the blood. When you do transcriptomics in the blood, you look at the transcriptome yep. of the white blood cells. So that already doesn't link mm-hmm. to each other. Um, I think the other part where transcriptomics comes in, and a lot of that is GTEx, where you have basic transcriptomics yep. of the organs, and that data is huge, hugely important, and it always gets overlaid with GWAS data yep. and things like that. Whether I'm very much a big fan of transcriptomics in white blood cells, I think there are not many people really doing that. I mean, there there have been a few studies. The data is out there. It's in GTEx. It's used. Um, but further than that, I mean, it would be really like, uh, and it's very much confounded with the blood, white blood cells and things like but that. But you're... Um, we've done work with methylation. Uh, just... uh, so methylation is, is a good mm-hmm. proxy for transcriptomics mm-hmm. in a certain way, but it's also in the white blood cells if you don't have access mm-hmm. to, to tissue. And then Cindy mentioned uh, single cell. Now, single cell is a totally exactly. different beast, right? I mean, single cell is not something you do on the population level in, in Cora yeah. or Framingham. It's mechanistic biology. Uh, single cell, it's, yeah, I, I think single cell is basically once you get ideas from GWAS on potential pathways, things like that, then it's the next level where you try to really pinpoint what's going on, what's going mm. in, on in these cells and, 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 and things, yeah, and things I think- like that. So, so in the end, I think there, there's like terms that really need to be put into context. And the same thing is true for metabolomics and proteomics. Of course, there is metabolomics of cell culture. There's, there's proteomics of tissue extract. And we haven't even mentioned yeah, the microbiome. Exactly. Right? But also, what do you, what do you think about it? I mean, we've just got a couple of papers that I can think of that have done this, but running, um, say, proteomics and or metabolomics at the same time that you're taking um, these single cell measurements, these single cell transcriptomics measurements or site seq, which it also includes the proteomics of the cell to be able to identify cell type and being able to see over time what's showing up in the plasma, that seems really compelling to me, just in terms of translating something mechanistic into something you might be able to measure in the plasma, but it's it, it's all discovery, right? 
Well, I, I think probably the first nearest thing would be single cell proteomics. I don't know where exactly that stands, but I think doing bulk proteomics and combine it with single cell RNA and, and you have it, that is not really something okay. I would favor. There are other techniques where you can have like, um, you can have this kind of, have like antibodies for the protein surface and have single cell resolution right. like that. Right. There's, there's data like that. That of course makes sense, but that's also in terminology, is that really proteomics i mean you're doing antibodies or surface protein so that even the it's term proteomics cell, you have to be careful yeah it's single cell transcriptomics you where you're able to identify the cell type is that that's how i think of it although people do call it proteogenomics but i no 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 no, no. there's also protein things you can do from antibodies. the cell surface and not only the transcript yeah, on, on yeah, the cell. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's actually a, Yeah, so a, then you a, can a, determine if it's CD4 positive, CD4 negative. You know, what's the nature of those cells, right? And then yes. and then I think being able to say in a uh, the publication that comes to to mind is the Italiano paper on LIF, uh, leukemia inhibitory factor, that uh, where they looked at uh, PD-1, I believe it was PD-1, an immuno-oncology treatment and responders and non-responders and simultaneously mm -hmm. did proteomics in the plasma. And that, I think, was what I had in mind. And there's maybe three publications I know of that that had that. And I don't know, mm -hmm. I guess I'm biased by trying to figure out what we can measure without biopsying, you know, and being able to make as much use of those precious biopsy samples as we can to then translate it. But you, you also talked about methylation, and I think I diverted you a bit. I just... Uh, no, 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 no. I, I just brought up methylation because we also did not only GWAS, but also epigenome yeah. association with, with the methylation. And there are also signals coming up where I think we, we in my view, we have this kind of thing like, say, genetic variant. In your metabolomics, like we like to say, these are like different valve yeah. settings. You you have your your organisms like all these pipes, and your your metabolites fly through the system, flow through the system, and then so these valves make you individual. That's your tune metabolic them. individuality. And I mean, you don't tune them; you inherit but them. But you're, from your parents. I guess, your your and then metabolic um um your metabolic status, which is based on your genetics and to some extent your environment is tuning them i guess was what i was yeah thinking but that i mean there are two things the one is that comes from your parents that's your genes so that's what i said setting, setting. that's yeah. set yeah and you can change that and then of course the system buffers itself and regulates itself and then you have other regulators that could be the, yeah. the methylation for Makes instance, total because sense. then there's a certain protein you need it more or less and then the methylation adjusts and says I need more or less of this or that enzyme. And that's something right. we've seen in some of the studies. And then you have the read that. So the methylation, to my view, is a bit the readout of the stress and how your body reacts to, to, to disease. And then in that sense, it's very complementary to, to the genetics. And you can basically get the, the, the nature versus the nurture mm -hmm. in, in one measure. And you can do that in population studies with the arrays for genetics and for for methylation in the same time and then combine that and we've done that we have papers with, met with metabolon and with with uh, with, with metabolomics and with proteomics yeah. on them and especially for diabetes all these complex disorders they're, they're really a, a nice signal coming out and mm -hmm. parallel you have positive controls like smoking is the the strongest one of the strongest um, methylation signal and you see like a handful of genes that are all associated with smoking and these genes make sense they actually 
are in the pathways for detoxification and and things like that. So I'm, I think there's a lot of prof promise of combining these things as well, like the methylome and the metproteome. And, and you mentioned also the, the glycans. So we have glycan data as well. So you can add protein glycosylation on that and find out what's the, for instance, IgG glycosylation, what's the inflammation yeah, state, amazing. things like that. Well, and I mean, that's what fascinates me to get more and more data and ideally all in the same sample, because then I can correlate the right. one to the other and really understand how, how they interact, how they work together. And, and then the GWAS on all of them, do GWAS on them, because the GWAS in a way is also a way of actually questioning your data. How well is your phenotype? Because a genetic variant can't lie. It's always hmm. causal. Other factors can be confounding or whatever, but genetics, except for some very constructed cases, it's, it's always yeah. the, the causal it's variant. It's unidirectional, you right? GWAS you don't have to test for reverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Very yes. good point. Yeah, your, your genes don't change because right. your metabolism mm -hmm. changes. And I admit, I did open up a big box in, with that particular question. I want to thank you, Dr. Zero, <laughs> yeah. for your generous time. I have one yeah. final question for you. And how's the weather in Qatar today? It's September. Is it still hot? Yeah, it's, uh, well, something around okay. 40 degrees. But it will go down and there will be the wo Football World oh, Cup there you go. in November. And then it will be nice, like 25, nice. things can, like that. Can so, I count on you for a after World Cup report in terms of what it was like? I bet that was I don't know anybody else. I don't Certainly. know anybody else in Qatar at the moment. So you will be my Qatar representative. No, I mean, they, they, we are expecting between one and two million people coming to Qatar. <laughs> and there are lots of, and you can buy tickets at the moment. It, it, it would be very yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Do you have That's tickets yet? No, I'm, I'm honestly, oh, I'm not a football fan. we got to edit that <laughs> out. I, I hate to say that. I, I hope you wouldn't yeah, No, me. it's okay. It's all good. Not, I mean, it's... But Qatar has been preparing for yeah, 10 years wow. for this. And I think they really put a lot of, um, I mean, they're really passionate about football. Yes. Yeah. It's not like you, in, in the West yes. very often, it's like, oh, Qatar bought the football club and there's a lot yes. of negative things. That Sometimes a bit frustrating to hear my compatriots in Germany, oh, you have to boycott <laughs> these guys, they're exploiting. It's absolutely, when you're here, not it's absolutely yes. not, yeah. it's not passion. like that. It's passion, it's true love. And, and especially, I think, especially, Especially, I think the Emir, he really brought the football cup here because he's yes. a football fan. Remarkable. And, yeah. and it's else. kind and generous of you to leave that ticket for someone who's truly, you know, <laughs> very okay. mean. Thank you, for, yep. thank you for the conversation. Right. Really enjoyed it. So well, much thank fun. Okay. Thanks, Karsten. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com. 